big processors have most most of them have dropped all their contracts here in California with direct directly with their farmers. So that now they are buying their milk through a broker. And when that when that happened, we had uh, we we started the Western Organic Dairy Producers Alliance when we started in the organic industry, and that was to represent the voice of the Western organic dairymen. And it will bring me to tears just to think about the last three years and the stories that we heard from each individual dairy farmer and their families about getting a notice that their contract ended and having nowhere to sell their milk. And there were dairies that went out of business when they had nowhere to go with their milk. There were other dairies that uh, were sold because they went bankrupt trying to find a home for their milk. And then we've had other dairies that supplied because they jumped on to sell their milk. But selling their milk to a broker does not mean they're getting paid for what it cost. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label, distinguishing organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Rosie Burroughs, a Real Organic Project certified farmer from California, and she's a member of WADPA, which is the Western Organic Dairy Alliance. I interviewed Rosie last fall about the role of brokers and pricing in the organic dairy industry, and unfortunately not much has changed in organic dairy since then. Pay prices are well below the cost of production and transparency is still greatly lacking. Brands ask us for blind faith in their sourcing. Meanwhile, confinement production in the arid west expands. I'm pleased today to welcome Rosie Burroughs to the Real Organic Podcast. I know her as the matriarch of Burroughs Family Farm, located in the central San Joaquin Valley of California. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Lindley. It's great to be with you here today. Matter of fact, uh, today started off with uh, a wonderful gift from God. We had uh, some light sprinkling this morning. Oh, yes. We always want that to happen in California, especially during fire season, which is kind of going all summer long now these days. Uh, You mentioned you had a fire in your... We actually had a fire on our farm. Um, They were were starting the machinery to clip the um, cover crop to get ready for the olive harvest. And the blade hit a rock and started a spark. And that's where... So the fire started right in the middle of an olive orchard yesterday. Had four fire trucks out, and they were able to take care of it and put it out. I really don't know the extent of the damage that happened last evening. Oh, my goodness. So you've got to go out there and see how much was burned, huh? Mm-hmm. We uh, refer to your farm as a, a lot of farms are similar in the Real Oriana Project, but we call them Noah's Ark Farms because it's kind of like, what aren't you producing? <laughs> so give us a quick rundown of your many operations at Burroughs Family Farm. Our family farm legacy spans over 120 years on Ward's side of the family with his grandfather, uh, Benjamin Burroughs. And in the late te- 1800s, he started. And in 1906, uh, 1906 he created his first um, dairy in the, in the Bay Area. And from 1906 through today, currently today, our family has carried on a, a dairy farming family legacy. Uh, unfortunately, though, for us, uh, we had two different dairies, one with our daughter and one with our son and their spouses. 
and our youngest son's dairy closed this last December. Uh, and that was, you know, probably one of the most heart-wrenching, difficult experiences that my husband and our family have had to go through. But thankfully, we have a daughter and her, her dairy is still continuing on. So when Ward and I first started in 1974, we started in a family partnership with Ward's father and his brother. And we continued that on for about 25 years when our children started to graduate from college and wanted to come in back into the farm. And at that time, uh, our paths were different. So we uh, split off the partnership and then Ward and I were on our own, which was like a, uh, a blessing and, and, and it was like a double-edged sword because while we ended our partnership that we felt very comfortable in, uh, we were on our own, but then that allowed us to bring in our own children, which eventually all of our children have followed the path of being involved in, in production agriculture, and they really are, it's in their DNA, they, they love what they're doing. Um, and so all together, we have um, almonds, beef, chickens, uh, we make some cheese uh, for seasonal projects, um, dairy, eggs, a whole menagerie of projects in the middle, including horses and, and goats and, uh, and lots of uh, different kinds of dogs that we raise, guardian dogs, working dogs, border collies and uh, kelpies. And with all these enterprises, then the last two projects that we've added are olives and sheep. So this last year, we've just completed our first year of a whole enterprise of grazing sheep. Wow. <laughs> so it is like, what aren't you producing? It's very fun. And then the children have their own projects. So we also raise um, hogs and rabbits and ch their own project chickens and 4-H projects. So it, it is a menagerie of of little projects and it changes as the children have been growing up. What kind of acreage are we talking about here? And is it all in one location or are you kind of spread out? Well, um, as we've been dividing our place up, um, we, we operate here in California in the San Joaquin Valley on approximately 3,000 acres. We do have another uh, 3,000 acres of rented lease land that we have. And then in Oregon, we operate on, on a forest and a farming acreage that is about, about 5,000 acres. We've, we've talked a lot about scale in the Real Organic Project. And um, as long as the production practices uh, you know, aren't compromised, then scale, you know, organic isn't scale um, uh, limiting. However, you know, with dairy, it seems like it really is because you need to get those cows into a milking facility twice a day and then back out to pasture that they can actually graze on, not just, you know, pasture that doesn't have any uh, forage on it. So um, you know a little bit about scale and what is possible with, uh, you know, what we would consider to be organic dairy. Could you talk a little bit about that? And sure. you know, is there a scale in dairy beyond which you aren't comfortable that, that you can actually be grazing? The sure, back sure. And, back well, I'd absolutely be comfortable with that because that was one of our greatest um, projects when we started uh, grass-based dairying and then organic regenerative grass-based dairying is that we were devoted as a mission statement to produce the highest, best quality of products 
through organic regenerative practices for our consumers, which is which also included ourselves and our staff. And um, we, you know, I never really like clumping words like large or mega dairies versus small family, because I don't think it matters what size you are. It matters whether or not you're following the the rule for organic standards in in grazing in in, in reference to the dairy business. And um, for for us, and and we're pretty lucky because we have more days probably than folks in the Midwest or even maybe in the East for the amount of days that we have sunlight, which would also equal to the amount of days that we can graze. And what we figure is that a minimum, uh, well, it you have to first answer in general terms. So generally, um, your pastures at the highest quality, you should, you should be able to graze 1.4 cows per acre. And that would mean, and if you were going to just put it in general terms, we'd say you should be able to graze one point or one to two cows per acre for 150 days year, a year. And one of the things that people or certifiers really don't encourage is that you should encourage them to, to graze more days if possible. And there are locations in the U.S. where you can graze more than 150 days um, per year. So right, I'm going to give you minimum. an example. I think the minimum is 120, and, and there are a lot of people that saw that minimum and thought, well, great, that's all I have to do. But right. it really is what the grazing season is in your location. That's right. And, it's supposed uh, so to be what, designed. So what is it where you are? How long is the grazing season? Every year uh, will vary depending on climate, right? And And climate can be either rainy or wet where you can't, take cows out to pasture or they can um, damage your pasture if it's wet and soggy. Or it could be days when it is so hot that uh, cows will want to bunch up and not graze because they're too hot, hot to graze. So it could be either, either too wet or too hot for grazing days. And uh, we, I, uh, I can't speak for anyone else other than our, our own family, but there are many years that we could graze more than, a, than 160 days per year. And so it also has to do with um, how much irrigation water you have too. Has that been an issue uh, in this really dry year we just had? Uh, here in, if, let's just talk about California. Uh, California farms in the Central Valley definitely have irrigation. Uh, and that can be either pivot sprinklers, flood irrigation, or wheel line moving. Those would be the three types of irrigation. Up in the, um, in the north part of the state, uh, we do have dairy farms that have similar types of irrigation systems, and we have other dairies that have absolutely no irrigation. So those farms that had no irrigation at all, then they would, their grazing days would be based on their rain, on, on, their, on their rain that they're receiving each year. So it, and that yeah. that one point four cows per acre is that what you're saying your situation is and it's not across the board or is that kind of a general like rule of thumb? Um, I'm going to say that this is a general term uh, uh, for practicality and discussing uh, grazing practices and and getting to what you were asking about grazing is that say that you have four pivots. And there are 160 acres, you know, on each corner. And you place your dairy barn in the middle of that. To us, and our experience of what, you know, how we've been uh, grazing, 
then that would mean that your cows should be able to walk um, a mile for milking to graze to the barn for one of their grazing uh, places and then less than a mile for their second grazing throughout the day. So let me explain that again. Cows come in from pasture to graze twice a day in our system. So we can use up to a mile away of pasture that they can graze in and then they come in to milk and then when they go back out, the next pasture that we'll turn them into is a little bit closer so that you're not having cows have to walk uh, four miles a day to go to come in for milking. Sure, so we're using that scenario. Um, I guess the best way to, the, you know, kind of the maximum to answer that question would be, so if you, if you had a thousand cows uh, and you had like, say 700, what we have is 714 acres, you would be uh, able to graze 1.4 cows per acre. Okay. And so when you see numbers, like you can go to um, Aurora Organic and, and thank goodness for transparency, they're actually putting these numbers up because um, a lot of them don't. When you see 12,150 cows on 7,000 acres of pasture, um, you know, that's less than a cow per acre. That's about half a cow. Yeah. I mean, sorry, it, I, half an acre per cow. Yeah. Is, does that seem like they're following the it, crazy it's, rules? It's simple math. And if you, if you, um, scale out one mile from the dairy barn, that will tell you how many acres you have and whether or not it is possible to graze that many cows next to a dairy barn. And I would say it's not possible. Okay, so this um, huge growth in um, larger dairies with less pasture has really impacted the industry. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what you've noticed over the years in terms of supply and demand for organic milk? I know there was a time when... Um, all the consolidation happened in the conventional industry and it seemed like organic was a, a haven for uh, people to make a go out of it in, in organic dairy. And so the number of organic dairies expanded for a while and then the consolidation happened in, in uh, organic as well. And we've seen the number of organic dairies <laughs> shrink. Um, is that something you've noticed? Our experience in the organic dairy industry has been since about 2003 when we started our first organic dairy. And in the beginning, uh, the price was a fair price and made sense for us to get into organic. But it wasn't soon after that the price just dropped. And you would hope that supply and demand would be what dictates price and people wanting to get in, into a new, new project. But there were several things that happened along that journey for organic dairy, um, there were some there were some requests that let let the uh, legislation uh, expand to let more animals into the dairy business in a program that they called trans, uh, transitioning, uh, so we could have so that there could be more milking cows. That was one thing that happened, um, and so there was a lot of people that were already dairy farmers in the conventional world that then looked at the high prices that were being paid to farmers and then went came into the organic dairy business. So there was a huge um, a huge volume that entered in in a very short time. It wasn't controlled or you know moved in 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 a way that could be handled in the market to work with supply and demand. So there was an overflow of milk uh, for a few years. but I but I would say that what, 
has hurt the small family farm, organic dairy farm, is the fact that uh, the USDA through the NOP has not uh, been enforcing the organic rules, in particular in regard to the pasture rule. How could they do that really simply? Like, it, this is not a difficult one to enforce. Do you have some suggestions there? I, I think that it's up to the certifying agency to train their certifiers. And, and I've seen different formulas from different certifiers that they use. But I think more importantly, common sense of just looking at the number of cows, knowing how many cows can graze per acre, that should give you a big clue right there in those basic math figures to know whether or not a dairy is complying with the organic rule. What about unannounced inspections as well on like, say, a 70-degree day during the grazing season? I think that the records, being, being able to look at the records, you still can look in a bulk way. If you've got uh, 15,000 cows on an acreage that doesn't support the grazing period, then flat out you know that they're not grazing. In terms of just having surprise inspections where it's part of the organic rule and everybody that is in compliance will, will be open to that because that is what is expected. So what effect has that had on the industry, on prices and on the survival rate of, of farms? Um, so I wanted to share this because um, I, don't, I don't think enough people understand what has been happening for us here out in the West. But I put these numbers together this morning just to show you what our personal experience is. So if we uh, started milking in 2004, and that's when we joined uh, shipping milk, and we ended in two 2021, uh, in the beginning, back in, in, uh, in that period, there were just a few family farms. And then by 2009, um, we did a survey of... Uh, our local co-op that we were shipping to. And in 2009, we had 23 families that were on 15 dairies here in the uh, San Joaquin Valley and, and here in California. So that's in 2009. Um, now we're in 2021. And of those original dairies, there are only two dairies left in the San Joaquin Valley. Now there are more dairies here in California that are in the northern part of the state. And here in the Central Valley, I think there's only another two dairies here in the Central Valley from our original two that were here in 2004. So that means there's only four, four dairies left total in the San Joaquin Valley. That's how, you know, that's how far the numbers have dropped. And, and that's just in your little spot. I think the same trends have happened all over the country in that same time period. Of course, we just heard about you know, what's happening with um, Danone dropping 89 uh, dairies in New England, or 89 contracts um, in New England over the next year and completely stopping, you know, to pick up any milk from the states of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and eastern New York. Um, would you say that's, you know, maybe they were stupid in, in deciding to do it all at once instead of just picking them off one at a time? Uh, kind of what happened in your region to go from 23 down to two? Was it a slow... Um, attrition, or was it kind of one event all at once? Uh, well, well, there were various events that happened in our experience with the dairies here. Uh, some of them had to do with transitioning dairies that were conventional, trying to transition to organic, 
and uh, there was uh, supply management implemented and they weren't able to capture the the income that they needed because they had to cut down on the volume they were producing. And that was one issue that happened to several uh, young young farmers, young dairy farmers. But then there were also um, older people that could not make that transition of the three years to organic without getting paid um, enough to, to, you know, to, to keep the operation going. Um, I would say that the most tragic thing that happened is that, and this is talking in the past, I, I'm not going to say that for today, but I would say that it felt like there was a monopoly of processors that were handling the milk. And there were so few of them that, um, Farmers, dairy farmers have been paid what they are given. They are not paid what it costs them to produce the product. And when you eventually run out of equity and you have bills that need to be paid, you're not getting paid enough to stay in business. And so for us, that took us, we, we probably stayed longer than we should have, but we lost a tremendous amount over the last uh, several years. When I interviewed John Eichard, he talked about um, the larger operations expanding while um, there were, was low pricing going on um, in order to completely dominate the market and kind of drive out the competition. It, does that seem like that's what was going on to you in your area? Well, for sure, um, I would say that anyone that's handling milk wants to make sure their supply is more than they need so that they can be fulfill their contract obligations. So I would say that's a practice that every processor and every broker make sure that they have as a tool in, the, in, in fulfilling their contracts. Would you explain, you just brought up broker, would you explain, um, because this is really foreign to I think most, most people don't really understand how this works. Like what, why do you have to work through a broker and, and what kind of, before you get to the processor, and what kind of um, influence does that broker have over the price? A broker is a middle person that is, and it can be between several companies, but it's generally between the, far, the dairy farmer producer and the person that is either going to buy the milk from the broker or another broker that there may be as many as two brokers involved before it gets into uh, the processor that is going, or the purchaser that's going to be buying the milk for the products that they that they have, and so every time you have a middle person, that means their salary needs to be paid, and so every time you're taking more money that would directly go to the farmer, the farmer continues to get less for his product because of the middlemen, and there's a whole string of middlemen besides brokers. You've got the distributors. You've got all kinds of different transportation issues that come into play. But it, it ultimately means less milk for, for the dairymen. For us here in California, there, there are just a handful. There's just a very few brokers that are handling the milk. But what happened to us here in the West over the last three years is now happening in the East. Some buyers of milk did not want their contracts with their directly with their dairy producers. So when their contract was going to be up and everybody's was at a different time here in California, the, um, the buyer would say, okay, we're, your contract is up in so many months, whether it's six months, nine months, or a year. 
and we're notifying you according to the contract rules uh, how much time uh, is required by that contract to let them know at the end of this contract we are, we are not going to be buying your milk directly from you. Our, your contract is going to end. And everybody had a different timeline depending on what their contract said and then also how much pressure was also given to, to those buyers on dumping uh, so many contracts you know, at a very short time period. Over the last three years, there have been many contracts that have been lost uh, or ended. And so the brokers then are the ones that are purchasing the milk. And basically, the, uh, the dairyman has no um, power to say, this price is too low, or I'm not going to sell you the milk because dairymen generally have bills to pay month by month and they can't just stop sending their milk. But the worst thing is, is that there's not enough buyers to buy the milk. So those that are buying the milk have contracts with their brokers to make sure they're supplied. So they're able to still continue purchasing the milk they want and when they want, but they don't have to worry about the overage when they don't want it. And that's where a balancer or balancing comes into play because say a buyer only wants a certain amount of loads, he has overage of extra milk that's produced, then the, um, the broker is going to balance that milk. So he's going to either sell it conventionally or find another organic buyer that would buy it. And a lot of this isn't transparent, right? So that the dairy farmer gets a check from the broker sometimes later, right? After the fact, after the, they've sold it, and they have no idea how much the broker actually made by selling the milk. And so the broker could say, I didn't get anything for it, you know, or I got a very low amount. Is, isn't there a lack of transparency in this whole thing? The contracts for dairymen and the way the system works for the organic dairy industry is there is no transparency on price. Matter of fact, the dairy producer has a contract whether it's with a, with a creamery or a buyer, broker, wh whoever it is, I don't know of any contracts that are transparent and that the dairyman can share what he is, uh, is, is getting paid for, nor do I think that any of the stores or retailers or whoever the buyers are that are buying from the broker, they also have their own contracts that uh, have clauses that say uh, this price is uh, has to be kept in confidentiality. It, there, there is no transparency between any of the of the line of exchange in selling uh, organic milk. Big um, pro, uh, big processors have most most of them have dropped all their contracts here in California with direct directly with their farmers so that now they are buying their milk through a broker and when that when that happened we had uh we we started the western organic dairy producers alliance when we started in the organic industry and that was to represent the voice of the western organic dairymen and it will bring me to tears just to think about the last three years and the stories that we heard from each individual dairy farmer and their families about getting a notice that their contract ended and having nowhere to sell their milk. And there were dairies that went out of business when they had nowhere to go with their milk. 
There were other dairies that uh, were sold because they went bankrupt trying to find a home for their milk. And then we've had other dairies that supplied because they jumped on to sell their milk. But selling their milk to a broker does not mean they're getting paid for what it cost. And it's very doubtful that any dairy farmer here in California can survive on, on, their, dairy, da, uh, on their dairy pay price solely on dairy because many farms, if they have equity, then they can, they can last a little bit longer. But if you have debt, there's no way to pay off debt with the pay price that we were receiving here, here in California. So of those uh, dairymen, uh, some, they've just, many of them have just gone out of business in this last three years. It's so frustrating to hear this story because um, I know that over this time, you know, COVID hit in the last couple of years and uh, organic sales have skyrocketed. I mean, we're up over $60 billion industry now and the demand for organic food has continued to go up. Um, really, it doubled, I think, over um, or double digit growth over the last year. And I'd like to just, um, I'm just really confused because um, milk is often like, like an entry point for organic. So all, all these customers that are kind of realizing, um, you know, that or they come into organic because milk uh, doesn't have antibiotics, you know, affiliated with it for organic. And, um, the, you know, the health effects of the animals on pasture uh, in, in actually getting better milk and also just the humaneness of, of keeping animals out, out of a CAFO. So, um, how is it that, that I know the demand is rising, um, we know the demand is rising just based on the data, and yet the farms are going under? What is going on there? We have a broken system. Uh, we have a broken food system throughout the U.S. And in this broken system, it's very hard to survive when there are so many obstacles. So it's just not a matter of, of the price not being fairly paid to the dairymen, but it also has to do with those that are producing the products and all of the difficulties they have. So there's a whole system in the retail business about shelf space, about loyalty to their previous customers, about whether or not they're going to let another brand into the store. Uh, and, and that whole system is completely broken because it's not based on any kind of transparency whatsoever to the consumer or, or to anyone down the line. But when a company, in my opinion, loses their connection with their farmer and they're going through a broker, there's no direct correlation or obligation to make sure that that farmer is getting paid a fair price. So the farmers then there are only a few places that they can sell their milk. That, that's the problem is um, it's almost like a monopoly or, or not even a monopoly. I, I know that there are some places that are in desolate places, you know, desolate locations and people now are looking at, okay, how can we cut our costs? Well, it's very easy to cut someone who has transportation costs than it is for someone who's closer in. That. There, there's a lot of reasons for, for why dairy uh, farmers are having trouble. But I think if we get back to honoring and making sure that the dairy farmer has a fair pay, pay price, 
uh, that would that would reflect well for fixing our system and, and keeping things moving forward. You know, it's so ironic. You're talking about fair prices and uh, Horizon, who just dropped those 89 contracts. They're a they're a B corporation, which means they're supposed to be taking into consideration the triple bottom line, not just profits, but also the environment and the social side of their business. Um, does this seem like it makes sense for a B corporation to have, to have dropped that many farmers all at once? So think about it. If we don't care about what happens to the family farmer, then it goes to corporate. And so corporate's going to buy from corporate. Yeah, we really need to get those relationships um, back into the system. And the uh, lack of transparency is what enables all this to happen, it seems like. Right. My comment would be that it doesn't matter if you're B Corp or whatever label you have for your company, but it's more about integrity. And so let's ask about what is the integrity of the companies who are dropping the organic dairy farmer. Yeah, or not paying them a fair price either, like you said. And and does that does that kind of change depending on the location? I've heard something like, you know, $30 per 100. Is that is that an accurate amount for what it takes to to make it work? Can you explain kind of pricing for a dairy farm? It's going to be very difficult to give you a a number of what it costs to produce uh, milk from one location to another, much less one state to another. California probably has the most strictest rules and regulations, the more hoops that you have to jump through with paperwork and the higher price for everything that we do here in California, from water, uh, 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 employment, and all of other other requirements uh, that are related to labor, and add land to that. So it would, I don't think it's a cookie cutter for any, for for any one price that you could say from one place to another. And that's why across the uh, the nation over the the last uh, eighteen years, we've seen that there are different prices for different locations. Mainly, it has to do with um, with also transportation because. Originally, transportation was taken care of by who's buying the milk. And over the last few years, now transportation is being told that the farmer has to cover his own cost for transportation. And that's new since the brokers have been coming in. Um, I want to go back to the, to the brokers again because some of the farms, when they lost their contracts, um, they had nowhere to go. They had no bro- – uh, maybe if a broker didn't have a buyer, he wasn't going to be able to take that person on. So when you have no place to go, then you have to fold. And so it breaks my heart. Uh, and I can, in my mind, I can still hear all these dairymen uh, from the Western states talking about not having enough time to be able to figure out how they could save their dairy. The contract was going to end and there was no one that would, could buy their milk. And that's not just in California. That was all the Western states. What role has the rise in these private labels of, you know, Costco organic milk or Safeway or, um, you know, I guess they all have their different names, but Walmart sells, sells, sells an organic milk and that's called a private label. Do you think that has um, played a role in all this? When you have a product that becomes a commodity and you are using private label, um, if, it's un- if it's not balanced, then 
it's going to be a lower pay price for the for the family farmer. It seems like it it breaks that chain of transparency that you're talking about that we need so much too, right? You, you transparency know, no list of producers behind yeah, those private labels. That's right, Lindley. Uh, transparency and uh, integrity are are the two most important words that um, we need to instill in the buyers and brokers and processors and consumers of, of what we need in our industry. Rosie, if the National Organic Program enforced the grazing rule and the origin of livestock, but it, it didn't address consolidation in the industry, would we still be in the same boat? Is it going to take more than the NOP actually enforcing the rules? I know it's a huge part of the problem. I'm just wondering if there's more to it, in your opinion. Well, who knows what, you know, where the future uh, is going to lead, where, you know, where our industry goes. Uh, but, to, but I believe that we wouldn't be in the situation we're, we're in today if the USDA through the NOP invo- enforced the grazing rule. And we know that the origin of livestock has some holes in it that are detrimental to those of us that are in the organic uh, production side. But we, we need to first start with the inspectors being trained correctly and then being able to implement uh, what, the grazing, what the grazing rule is stating that they need to do. And we know it's not occurring. So that brings me to the next situation of what else would fix our situation. I've been thinking about this, and it seems like if you have the fox living in the hen house, uh, you're not going to really have change. And there's two problems with our government agencies, and one is that I feel like our government... Uh, and I'm not going to be on either one of the political sides. So I'm not going to say it's just happening this year and didn't happen four years ago or whenever the change was, whether it's Republican or Democrat. But it seems like our government is, is bought. And so when you have people that are at the top in the enforcement and they tell their staff, no, we're not going to we're going to drop that or we're not going to enforce that, then we have a completely broken system. So I think that when you have corporate uh, power that can buy their uh, people that they want in government to be their voice, then it's going to be very difficult to make things correct. One of the other problems, uh, as I was talking about the, the fox in the hen house, is that when a certifying agency, which is supposed to be uh, non-biased and independent, if they're getting paid by the farms that they are certifying, and you have one farm that has 5,000 organic dairy cows, and you have another farm that has 100 um, organic dairy cows, um, is it likely, do you think, that the certifier is going to want to put out of business someone that has great number of cows that are paying based on their number of cows to the certifier for that certificate. So we have the fox in the hen house with the certifiers. I think we need to change the system so that money doesn't influence whether or not you're getting certified or not. And whether that's through their own certifiers and what they're getting or from corporate companies that are putting pressure on to not decertify a farm that they need that product from. 
I know that OFA, Ohio Ecological Food and Farming Association, they are very proud of the fact that they have a flat rate so that, you know, I don't know what the price is, but it's a thousand bucks or whatever to certify any operation, no matter how big or how small. Does that seem like a solution to you? I, I like that idea because it doesn't, um, it doesn't put the, their payment in jeopardy of whether or not they're decertifying a, a farm or not. It should be all the same. Matter of fact, uh, yeah, okay, I'll just leave it there. No, I completely agree with you. I, I see the certifiers blaming the National Organic Program for failing to enforce and you know pass the origin of livestock. But I, I think that that is um, weak. I think that they have every ability to enforce these rules themselves and that the power is in their hands and that the farmers should be revolting against their certifying agencies who are allowing this to slip through the cracks. So I'm, I'm very much, um, you know, I, I think that this, this problem, these problems that we have in the organic industry could be solved by certifiers with integrity. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. It would, it would change the... Uh... It would, it would change the whole industry, and it would, I think it would balance out and uh, that supply and demand. If you don't have an abundance that you can lower the price, uh, then we would, the price would come back up for, for the family farm. Well, thank you, Rosie. I've picked your brain for a long time today, and I know you're still in the middle of a busy season and dealing with fires and sick grandchildren and, and everything that, you know, farmers deal with on a daily basis. So I really appreciate your time. Is there anything I didn't ask you today that you want to say? I just wanted to say that um, I applaud and am very pleased and I have a lot of hope that the Real Organic Project has created so much awareness about some of the problems that we have in our organic uh, label today. And uh, I do wish that uh, the, organ uh, the Real Organic Project would become a certifier because that's the thing I think could change um, moving forward. Just think about how this would look. If all the farmers that felt like the certifiers are not doing their job left those certifiers and went to certifiers that they felt did, that action alone would show the confidence that that we uh, have in ourselves to get certified by a different certifier than the ones that aren't implementing the, the rules and regulations that, that we need to be enforced. So thank you to um, the um, Organic Real Project. Uh, I am so pleased that you are taking the time to learn the issues that we have that are, that are causing us to um, not only have hardships with financial uh, insecurity, but also to, uh, to try to keep the farmers on the land. So as I said in the opening, I think it's our greatest resource we have in our country today is our organic family farms on the land producing food for those of us who, who need to purchase our own food. That's so interesting, your solution there. I wonder if it would fracture our movement, um, you know, because there are so many good, good certification agencies out there. Um, more, there, more than it would yeah, bring us there, together, there are but it certainly is tempting. <laughs> yeah, there are some good ones. And, if, and those that are good, would their farmers would stay with them because they believe in what they're doing. So I, I don't think it would fracture at all. One of the things that's difficult is um, some of the brokers, because they're selling to different um, buyers, there may be some buyers that want the milk for just GMO-free. So we have to have a label for that. We have other buyers that... 
uh, are selling for um, uh, animal uh, welfare. There's two different certifying agencies that different uh, buyers want. So there's those two added to the GMO free. Are you referring to like certified humane? All and, the different, and what else? The, all the, whatever a buyer wants to sell, whether it's organic or conventional, right? So say that they're wanting to buy and, and put something in a carton that is uh, non-GMO milk, right? Or pesticide-free uh, product or whatever it happens to be. It's already included in an organic label, but they want this other label so that it fits their criteria for their buyer, for their market of what they're selling. So even though it's certified organic, uh, that may not be the label that they need because they're going to take that pro milk product and or milk and they're going to sell it to a buyer that, that doesn't care about organic, maybe only wants the GMO free label, or maybe they want a another kind of a label, another different kind of humane label. So it's been burdensome for farmers to have to continue to get more and more different kinds of cert certificates. And, you know, I, I've teased about this before, but uh, your dairy farmers could then become Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts with, you know, badges that have all the different labels. But but it it's not the answer to have all these different labels. We need labels that have integrity, right? And that's what the real organic project has transparency. That's what we need. We just don't need more labels. And that's why I think that the, the real organic project has brought that to the forefront. Like, well, people are saying, well, why do we need an organic real project label? And why, why are they, you know, what's going on? So then we talk about, you know, the vegetables that are, that have uh, been grown in hydroponics and never, that was never meant to be an organic label. And yet, how did that get passed? Right? That, that's huge. It's really huge. How, th that's not a living life cycle. We're when we talked about what does it mean to be organic, it means to be working with the earth and the roots need to be in the earth to get the biological activity of the microbes working together to produce the, the nutrition that needs to be in that plant. It's so obvious to a farmer. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're right, right. So I, I, I you know, we, again, our family uh, through Burroughs Family Farms uh, applauds uh, the Real Organic Project. And we hope that through this communication, we can have a, a voice that can be heard to our consumers, to our brokers and our processors about uh, holding up the integrity and transparency and in, in ensuring that our our families stay on the land to continue our good work. Well, thank you for doing that good work and for sticking in it. And, you know, if the dairy didn't work out for your family, you're farming in other ways. And so for being so adaptable. Well, we're trying sheep right now. So that's our big new enterprise. We're grazing sheep. So I'm just we'll, so we'll happy to that hear goes. that. I mean, you it, know, it wasn't the end for your, your family. Um, it, it, was it was very difficult for the members of our partnership. Um, but I've always liked um, some wisdom that was given to me that in, in the journey of life, whatever comes on your path, whether it's difficult, hard, sorrowful, happy, whatever it is, accept it and learn from it and become a better person for it. And so I just told my husband and our partners that, okay, so this door has closed, but now let's just be open to asking God what's next for us and where he wants us. Right now he wants me here today to tell our story.
<laughs> well, we are very grateful that you did, and I appreciate how much time you gave us. Thank you so much, Rosie. Okay. Thank you. Best Thank you. to your family, and uh, keep busy, even though you're retiring. Just keep your hands dirty, right? There's no such word as retirement. We may not have partners, but, but we'll have special projects for sure. I, I'm counting on it. I, I don't doubt it for a second. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 77. Please join us next time when our guest is Ed Malpe, Executive Director of the Northeast Dairy Producers Alliance, to continue our investigation into the problems in organic dairy. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, which is our book club, where you have the opportunity to ask many of our favorite authors your questions. See you next time.